Well, it's probably safe to say that it is a cliche or at least a stereotype that religion is bland and boring, black and white, sort of a sleepy experience. Nothing happens that's very great, very terrible, knows no great victories, nor defeats. Nothing decisive takes hold. It's just kind of a religious life that meanders uh, shapelessly through the remaining years of your life until you die. And I suspect that if what you think you're doing when you trust Jesus is to add Jesus to your already full life as an auxiliary means of a value, it probably does represent the fact that, yeah, it's sort of shapeless and meaningless. But if you believe the gospel, if you embrace faithfully what God has done through Jesus in his death and resurrection, then there is a lot that changes. There is a decisive moment where things turn. Because the work of Jesus is dramatic and decisive. It changes the relationship, your relationship to the world around you. It changes your relationship even to yourself. And it changes your relation to spiritual power. I want to invite you away from the cliche and into the life that Jesus has for you. And to do that, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, beginning verse 8. It's uh, like halfway through your New Testament there. And uh, the Apostle Paul has just written this. He's just written, it says, As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you began, continue. If you were saved by faith, continue in your life by faith. And so that is, that is where he left us there in verses 6 and 7. Now in verse 8, it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here in Colossians 2, we see that Jesus is over the philosophies and ideas of the world. Jesus is over the penalty and the power of sin, and Jesus is over the spiritual forces. Or to say it another way, the gospel renders ideas empty. It renders the flesh powerless, and it renders spiritual forces impotent. So faith in the gospel unites you to Jesus' victory over philosophy, the flesh, and spiritual forces. So let's look at the first part, verses 8 through 10. Suggests that Jesus is over all philosophies and religious ideas. It starts off by saying, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, of the world. I want you to notice that opening uh, encouragement. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I have to admit that I have I've been a pastor for nearly three decades. And I have heard more philosophy in this last year than I have heard in my entire life. I have seen the church polarized, not the country for sure, the church even polarized by competing philosophies that have taken captives, people on the left and on the right. And I was thinking this could have been written to us, right? Seeing that no one takes you captive by philosophy in empty deceit. In other words, there is something that can anchor you and not let you be taken away. There is something better than philosophy and empty deceit. Now, even as I say that, we have to pay attention that we don't get caught off guard in taking captive by lesser ideas. As I'm thinking about this, you can, you can look a later, later on and you can see what the Apostle Paul is writing about. He talks later in verses 16 through 22 about visions and angels and elemental spirits. He, he's got these ideas that the church is being taken captive by here. But I thought, what would, if he was writing to us directly, what would he say? What kind of philosophies would he address today? I, I ask you that, and you probably think of some. You can probably think of some, right? Some philosophies that you've heard. I mean, um, and I'm, I'm probably too chicken just to throw out the labels because then we'd all get in a big fight. But the reality is there has been uh, a lot of philosophies. And when I say that there are 
empty philosophies, pretty much all of us think about the empty philosophies of the people who are different than us. The empty philosophies of the people on the other side. If you're on the right, the empty philosophies belong to the left. If you're on the left, the empty philosophies belong to the right. And the reality is we are polarized because we, as a nation and I think as a church, are believing philosophies on both sides that do not accord to Christ. What he's suggesting here is that we have something better. I mean, look, look at that in verse 8. It says, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, you're calling people back to something. That's a problem. According to the elemental spirits of this world. And here's, here's the punchline. And not according to Christ. These are ideas that seek to address the brokenness of our world apart from Christ. And he says, be on guard that you are not giving in to those things. Because you'll, you'll notice there that these philosophies involve empty deceit. That giving yourself to them is going to leave you empty. Whereas it is in Jesus that all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells. It is in Jesus there's fullness. There is in these, all of these political and philosophical ideas where there's emptiness. And you have to decide, which one am I going to make primary in my life? Which one am I going to believe in? Which one am I going to advocate for? Jesus, where there's fullness, or philosophies where there's emptiness? He talks about the gospel of Jesus being true where these philosophies are deceitful and empty. And you find that It's so easy for us to get caught up by, by virtue of what we listen to, what we read, and the, 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 the things that captivate us. I mean, how ironic is it that on the one hand, we, we want to talk about science. And on the other hand, we want to talk about what happens to people after they die. That we... Surrender the miraculous to science. That we put our hope in politics. That we embrace our culture's vague spirituality where there is, something me there is some kind of meaningless afterlife and God is just a cosmic nice guy. And the reality is if that's how you view it, yeah, kind of all philosophies are up for grabs. Because that's not how the gospel presents Jesus. I think if Paul were writing us, he would probably confront us with the emptiness of our religion and confront us with be, give, becoming captive to these other ideas when we surrender 
the power of the risen Christ. You think about it, these kinds of ideas are everywhere. There has been a big resurgence, and you, I'm sure you know of it, in Eastern religions and Stoicism uh, and other philosophies, aside from even uh, those political ideologies that captivate us. And he says, listen, those are empty when Jesus is full. Don't let people take you captive by empty deceit or tradition or vague spirituality. Because Jesus is better. And then he goes on in verses 11 through 14 to say, Jesus is not only better than philosophies and ideas, Jesus is better than, uh, than sin, and he breaks the power of sin and takes away its penalty. <laughs> and it gets a little weird here right away. Verse 11, it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And I just have to say, why does he have to start talking about that? Because it was making sense before. I understand the differences in philosophy and why those might be a problem, but what is this? And in this section, verses 11 through 14, there are two main thoughts that I think we have to come to grips with. The first has to do with our identification with Christ. What happens to you when you trust in Jesus is that by faith you embrace him, you identify with him. And there are two ways he talks about that here. The first identification is with this word circumcision. Okay? He's not really talking about physical circumcision because he says that. It's made without hands. It's the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision, he uses that because what he does is he tries to bring, that, bring an Old Testament thing here into the New Testament and say, like circumcision identified the Jewish people with the covenant of God, you too, by faith, identify yourselves with Jesus. So the identification with Jesus is what's at stake here, not the physical act of circumcision, because he says the very opposite. It's made without hands. It's not physical. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your identification with Jesus. And then, just to make sure you understand its identification, he goes on to say, having been buried with him in baptism. What does baptism do? Baptism identifies you with Jesus, plain and simple. He's really interested in you and me getting the fact that what faith means, what it means to trust in Jesus, is to identify with him. Not to identify with these other um, philosophies or ideas that are also part of our world, but to identify with Jesus. When you do that, notice what he says, you're buried with him in baptism. You are raised with him, verse 12, in baptism. 
and you are made alive together with him. Verse 13. That's what the identification does. The identification brings you life today. It brings you eternal life one day, and it brings you life today. Because your identification with Jesus gives you resurrection life even today. And so he's talking about what it means for us to participate in the life of Jesus. Uh, some of you may even uh, remember we're trying to memorize Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 as a church, and we're going to use that as our benediction, but it, it, that talks about this identification that I have with Jesus and his life living through me. So it is here that I identify with him and I'm made alive together with him. And what does that identification with Jesus do? That's, that's, I think, the thing we have to kind of get nailed down here. It does two things. It is this faith in the powerful working of God, verse 12. It takes those who are dead in trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of their flesh. And it makes them alive. So since he's not talking about um, he's not talking about circumcision here, per se. Uh, you know that. When he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about a physical body either. He's using the flesh in a way that describes your uh, life apart from God. The theological categories are that you are in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. You are, you are dead, as it says here, in your trespasses, or you are alive. There, there, there are categories that happen when you trust Christ. You shift categories, okay? And he's saying there is this problem with the flesh that Christ solves when he died and rose again and you get the benefit of that when you are united to him by faith. So you might say, oh, you kind of lost me there when you started talking about theological categories, blah, blah, blah. Fair enough, okay? Let me see if I can, um, see if I can say it another way that's not quite so um, tied up in categories here. The flesh is that broken part of you. Your flesh is that old life that still works its way into your current actions in spite of the fact that you don't want it to. It's the inner dialogue that you have with yourself when you are tempted to be angry or when you're tempted... Sometimes you don't, we don't talk to ourselves quite enough when we're tempted to be angry, but when you're, when you're tempted to gossip, when you're tempted to do whatever, and you start to talk to yourself, and you begin to explain it away and say, well, it's going to be okay, because you can do this and blah, 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 and you talk to yourself. That inner dialogue. It's the script that you play from your childhood that says, I've got to be perfect in order to be loved. I've got to earn uh, people's approval. I got to earn God's approval. 
and you tell yourself these stories, and you have been telling yourself a version of that story your whole life. That's the flesh. The flesh is the desire that you have to be the center of the universe. And some of you say, oh, I'm bashful, I'm an introvert, I don't want to be the center of the universe. But you do want to be respected, you do want to be thought highly of, you do want to be important to somebody. And that is the flesh. It's that. It's that body of flesh. It's, that, it's being dead in your sins and the, the non-reformed flesh. That's the problem. And then what does he do? He says, when you identify with Christ, those old patterns, those old things, those all go to the cross. And you die to all those old things and you're raised to a new life. That's the picture here that he wants us to get from baptism. And what that suggests then is that Jesus is victorious over all of that old way of thinking. Jesus is victorious over all of those old patterns and habits and sins. Jesus has conquered me. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. He doesn't just conquer bad ideas in this world or empty ideas. He conquers me. And he renders powerless that old life. <laughs> and that is, that is pretty good news. And I don't think we talk about that quite enough. Because the other news is so spectacular that we sort of lose that news. The other news is in verse 14... It says that God, verse 13 and 14, you have been made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Let that sink in. That the other thing that, that Jesus did on the cross was that, that he canceled the I-O-U that you have before God that you owe him because of your rebellion. All of that record of wrong, it's gone. It's been nailed to the cross. There is no getting it back. You have the rightness of Jesus because he took away your sin and your guilt. And so see that's part of that's part of the tape or the recording, isn't it, that your flesh plays is you're you're just too bad for grace. You're too unworthy to be loved. You're not enough. You've messed up way too many times to hope that you can be forgiven. But what he says here is that when you trust Jesus, you are forgiven. You have been released from the penalty of your sins. And so Jesus is victorious here 
because of his cross and resurrection over the penalty of your sin and the power of your sin. And he frees us by virtue of his victory on the cross and resurrection. He frees us from both the penalty and the power of our sin as well as from the emptiness of the ideas around us. And I just want to step back a minute and suggest to you that this is, this is really freeing because you've got to deal with the brokenness in the world somehow. I do too. We all do. Because like it or not, it's out there. Huh. Like it or not, it's in here. And so we've got to figure out how are we going to deal with the brokenness. And that, frankly, is what all of these philosophies are trying to do in one way or the other. You may disagree with them or you may embrace them, but the reality is they're all trying to solve the same problem, the brokenness of the human condition. And what we have so far here is that Jesus is full when those other attempts to solve the problem uh, of the human brokenness, they're empty. But more than that, Jesus himself solves it. He solves it one person at a time by taking out that old person and putting in a new person, a new heart, and, and making them alive, freeing them from sin's power and sin's penalty so that then they can live a new life. And that would be that would be amazing if that's all there was. <laughs> but we're still not done. There's still verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This is breathtaking. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus created these rulers and authorities. Verse 10 tells us that he is the head of these rulers and authorities. And here it tells us that he conquered these rulers and authorities, these spiritual enemies of God and of you. They are not just conquered. I love the language here. They are put to open shame and they are triumphed over. He disarms them and then embarrasses them. In other words, the spiritual power that you uh, need is found in the resurrected Jesus, not in some other thing, not in Eastern mysticism, not in horoscopes, not in some other religion. It is found in Jesus. And that means that part of your enjoyment of the gospel, your delight in the gospel together here, like we're doing for these 50 days, part of that enjoyment is that you can be fearless about other spiritual powers. When Jesus disarmed them and put them to open shame, I mean, there's all kinds of things, right, that are scary about spiritual darkness. I 
But this means that they may bite, but they're toothless. They may smell of sulfur, but there is no poison. You, united with Jesus, have nothing to fear spiritually. The very first promise of the Bible says this. In Genesis 3.15, it says, God tells us that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, even though it would bruise his heel. In other words, this seed of the serpent, this, this serpent that deceived Adam and Eve and caused them to rebel against God and throw off God's authority, presumably for their own, unwittingly they became under his authority, under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, is what it calls him in another place, the ruler of this world. And what you have here in Colossians 2 is God asserting that Jesus has broken that authority. He has broken that power and that you are free from spiritual darkness. Jesus has released us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's Colossians chapter 1. It is almost impossible to overstate this overwhelming victory that Jesus has won over the forces of darkness. You have nothing to fear. And so if you roll this all together, where you have ideas and philosophies and things that the world around us is fighting over and the church has been getting picked off. If you don't let people, if you don't let those ideas capture you, but you remain captured by Christ, this completely transforms a ho-hum, bland and boring experience into the real thing. Where the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died and rose again, proves better than any philosophy or religion. Better than the promises sin would make you. Better than the deceitfulness of the spiritual forces of darkness. Jesus is victorious. And he's better than those philosophies and he's better than sin and he's better than the powers of darkness. Which makes me, I mean, I just read this. I, just, I mean, I don't even need a sermon here, right? You just need to read this. And you read Colossians 2, 8 through 15, and you realize you can't delight in Jesus enough. 50, we're in the middle of 50 days of delighting in Jesus together. But that's not enough. I mean, we're hardly just going to scratch the surface by saying we're going to try it for a few weeks, Right? The church has known this. The church has known that Jesus is the center of 
their faith, that Jesus is victorious, that Jesus is powerful and better than all these other things. They've known this all along. And one of the ways that the church delights in Jesus is that they talk about him around a meal. We call that meal communion or the Lord's Supper. And I'm, I'm just going to say, this doesn't look much like a meal. I, don't, I hope that's fair to say. And I think it's safe to say this, too, that this parallels our experience of the glory of Jesus. Our experience of Jesus is to the reality of Jesus like this little combo pack is to a feast. In other words, what we're about to do when we celebrate communion is simply a pointer. It keeps us from forgetting. We do it monthly. The church does it around the world regularly to remind ourselves that these empty ideas that we have to swim in all day long are not the best things. That this pressure I'm under because of my flesh and the, the penalty that would otherwise hang over me because of my sin, that those things are gone. And I tend to forget it, and so we have a reminder. And there are days when I fear the powers of darkness. And I need another reminder that Jesus is victorious over them too. And so we have this little wafer and this little cup as a reminder that one day there will be a feast. One day we will be in the presence of Jesus together, enjoying this victory of Jesus so much more fully than we enjoy it today.